Welcome back, everybody, to part two of our Ask a Fellow series on iron deficiency in pregnancy. Again, we have hematology fellows, Dr. Jennifer Teichman and Dr. Heather Vandermeulen with us today. In this second part, we'll discuss the inequities in our healthcare system that lead to misdiagnosis or underdiagnosis, as well as undertreatment of iron deficiency in pregnant women. Is iron deficiency then that often missed because we're not testing or is there, or is there something else to it? Um, and are we also under treating women um, who are pregnant, who are iron deficient? This is such an important question. And <clears throat> the answer, unfortunately, like everything else in medicine, is it's multifactorial. So I think to begin with, and this is really my bias from the study that I did, but I think that we systematically normalize iron deficiency anemia and iron deficiency in women. I think a perfect example of this is the fact that the, the lower limits of normal for ferritin used by all these different labs, both in our own downtown academic hospitals in Toronto, as well as some of the bigger community labs throughout the province, these lower limits of normal are sometimes as low as six, which means that some well-meaning GP or OB sends off a ferritin, and if it comes back at seven, they may not, need, not even notice it because it's not going to be flagged on their EMR as abnormal. But we all know that a ferritin of seven is, is profoundly low. That's, that's profound iron deficiency based on our clinical standard. So I think that the, the way that we've constructed laboratory testing is problematic to begin with, and I think that it is normalizing on a systematic way iron deficiency in women. I think another factor that we probably don't really appreciate is the, the true prevalence of iron deficiency in pregnancy. I think people would be very shocked to hear numbers like 50% or 70%. That's probably because older estimates from, from older literature, uh, they came up with numbers that were more like 16% or 25%, but these studies used very inappropriately low ferritin limits to define iron deficiency. So we know that these are, in retrospect, we now know these were profound underestimates. And another argument that I've heard, you know, through clinical rotations is that iron deficiency in pregnancy is physiologic. But I'm going to call BS on that. And when you think about it, if something is physiologic, it's not something that fixes when you replace it. So, you know, in our example, if you have severe iron deficiency, and it subsequently is causing anemia, when you replace the iron and your hemoglobin goes back up, that, that's not physiologic. That was a deficiency and a problem that you fixed and it got better. So I really think that this is just another example of sexism in medicine. And like Jen was speaking to the laboratory reference ranges. Again, I think that speaks to a really unfortunate culture of sexism in medicine. So, so knowing that the lower limit of normal can be as low as six, like where did that come from? How did, how did right? they even make that standard? Right. It's pretty ridiculous. So it makes you wonder where these ranges are coming from. So the answer is it's nothing fancy. Basically, 
the analyzers that run a ferritin test, like the actual machine, the manufacturers of those machines, there's two main manufacturers. And they basically just took a bunch of presumably healthy young people. And in, in, in both cases, in both manufacturers, um, the, the numbers of people that are included in these ranges are, are not high. It could be 20 people or 50 people. And they, you know, screen them for obvious medical illnesses. But as long as they're relatively healthy, their blood is, is taken. And then they take an average of all of those values. And then they come up with a normal distribution. And based on this um, sort of two standard deviations around the mean, that's, that's how you come up with your reference limit. But if those healthy people are not getting bone marrow tests to prove that they are iron replete, then you can't actually use them as a gold standard. And for sure, based on the prevalence of iron deficiency in women of childbearing age, young, healthy women who are likely to be laboratory technicians, for sure, you are including iron deficient people in the establishment of your normal ranges for ferritin. And I think this is a really interesting point because you or, or we talk a lot about how women historically have been excluded from other types of studies due to a variety of hormonal studies or they're taking birth control um, or they weren't able to consent on their own behalf. Um, and so even in an area which is solely focused on women, there is still a level of um, sort of systematically discriminating or normalizing things that, that, that shouldn't be normal or, or some version of sexism. I'm curious if there are then any other sort of equity points that have come up in your research. There were actually, I kind of mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, but one of the things that we wanted to look at was, okay, so first of all, we wanted to see how frequently are physicians even screening pregnant women for iron deficiency. And that was pretty surprising. So about 60% of the time, a woman gets a, a ferritin test in pregnancy. But then we wanted to see, does that change based on socioeconomic status? And with the data that we had, we only had access to postal codes. So we were able to infer a woman's um, annual household income based on um, the, the Canadian federal census, which gives you an average of a, page of a person's annual income based on their postal code. And we found that, in fact, women of lower socioeconomic status were less likely to have iron deficiency screening in pregnancy. And think about that for a second. Like, that's not saying that a, a woman of lower socioeconomic status is more likely to be iron deficient because we actually already know that to be true. We know that. And we also know that women of lower socioeconomic status are less likely to receive iron supplementation in pregnancy. So those are problems with, I guess you could call those the social determinants of health that we that we more commonly encounter in our, in our clinical training. But this is actually the medical system itself failing for this marginalized portion of, of our population. And again, we're not even talking about a small proportion of the population. What our data looked at was women in different income brackets that aren't even that far, like that low. Like some, some of our income brackets were above the poverty line. 
and they were just simply being compared to women in very high socioeconomic brackets. So it's interesting. Um, I did similar uh, kind of research up at Sunnybrook and for anyone that knows kind of Toronto hospital uh, stereotypes, it's a, it's a very different population. It's a, compared to St. Michael's, which is where um, Jen did some of her research out of and also Ontario wide, but um, this is typically thought of, of as an affluent population. So that's your baseline. But we looked at um, again, using postal codes and looked at transfusion outcomes in pregnancy and also looked at iron deficiency. And we found the exact same thing that women living in lower income postal codes were almost three times as likely to get transfused in pregnancy. And, that's insane when you think about it Um, because transfusion and pregnancy has all kinds of subsequent um, implications. Like you can make antibodies against the someone else's blood that you're seeing and that can complicate your future pregnancies. Um, So it's not, it's not a benign outcome by any means. And it also speaks to the higher rates of underlying iron deficiency in that population. But what was also interesting was we looked at, Um, some race-based data. And what we found was that women of color uh, were also higher risk for iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia. And it's interesting because we often found that women um, women of color were less likely to have ferritins checked and more likely to have a low hemoglobin, low MCV, just, oh, they must be thalassemia trait. Um, So let's just ignore it. Let's not bother checking their ferritin. But, you know, the reality is you can be uh, iron deficient and have thalassemia trait at the same time. Those are by no means mutually exclusive. Um, And so I think we're really, you know, doing those women a disservice by, you know, making those assumptions. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's, it's kind of wild that this is being brought up now because it seems like it's such a easy problem to identify and also treat. Um, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we think of iron deficiency all the time and we treat it all the time. Um, but I think it also is, is so representative of all of the other barriers in medicine where outcomes that are linked to race or gender really are more representative of a system-wide issue uh, rather than, you know, the person being the other, the person being um, of a specific race or culture or living in a specific postal code or with whatever job. Like it's really representative of sort of how we are systematically sort of ignoring or at least not paying attention to a good subset of the population, um, even though there are easy solutions and easy ways to pay attention to them. And I just have um, a question about sort of access to iron. So I know you guys said that iron is quite cheap, um, but it is over the counter. Um, so for those who may not have, and even though it's cheap, for those who may not have, you know, um, funds or they may not have extra income 
to have iron, to buy the iron over the counter. Are there prescription formulations or in those cases, do you sort of just jump straight to IV iron because you can get sort of any exceptional access use? And if there's no answer to this, then, then you know, I think this is a, a common thing that comes up in the population sort of above 25 and less than 65 who don't don't have insurance or don't have extra income. But I'm just curious sort of what your practical tips have been in those scenarios. Totally. So uh, I'll tell you in a second, a project that I'm working on that's exactly about this. So um, practical tips. If someone has access to, again, this is sorry, just specific to Ontario um, for anyone listening outside apologize I don't know outside of Ontario um, but the Ontario drug benefit um, if your patient is on ODB then they will have access um, to ferrous gluconate and ferrous fumarate unfortunately for no good reason they will not have access to ferrous sulfate so don't prescribe that because that won't be covered by ODB in terms of uh, IV iron so you can access it. Um, an LU code just came out for um, Venifer. Uh, you have to be uh, anemic uh, is kind of the caveat. And um, historically, when you were applying for exceptional access, um, that was also the thing in pregnancy. So you can get it um, if you have iron deficiency, but only if you have iron deficiency anemia. So for patients with isolated iron deficiency who are very symptomatic and they're not responding to oral irons, you're really in a pickle um, because there's no easy way to access it if someone doesn't have private drug coverage or isn't willing to pay um, out of pocket for venipherin pregnancy. Um, and so what we're actually doing up at Sunnybrook is we've very, very uh, graciously um, been given funds from a uh, donor to fund IV iron and oral iron for women in living in low incomes um, who are pregnant. And so we're kind of tracking those outcomes. But um, yeah, what we're realizing is there are actually a lot of women that fall into that category of, you know, they, they don't have low enough incomes to qualify for ODB, but um, they don't have high enough incomes that they can pay for iron out of pocket and they don't have private drug coverage. And that's actually a significant portion of our pregnant population, exactly like you're alluding to between age 25 and 65. That's really, you know, where you're, you're missing um, coverage for stuff like IV and oral iron. I do have one last question before we move to our take-home points. Um, so outside of pregnancy, I think the Choosing Wisely guidelines will say if you can't tolerate one oral iron, then switch to another one and then switch to another one before moving to IV iron. Has that been your practice uh, in pregnancy or do you kind of just say like, you know what, like if you can't tolerate one and we can get access to IV iron, then let's just do that instead? It's all, it's a matter of time of how much time you have. Um, like Jen was alluding to earlier, it depends where you are in the pregnancy, but really this isn't the time to 
I'm around and I'll see you back in three months after you try this iron and see if your side effects get better. Um, you know, you're, you're fighting the clock on this. So I would say after I've tried one iron salt, um, and I usually, if I can, unless they're profoundly iron deficient, I find that sulfate and gluconate are usually tolerated a little bit better. So depending whether they have coverage or not, um, I prescribe one of those. But if they're not tolerating it, then I have a very low threshold if I can access IV iron to just go to IV iron and people feel so much better and are so grateful to not have the GI side effects of an oral iron. Yeah, I completely agree with that. The only other thing I would add is just to say, know your relative amounts of elemental iron in each of your iron salts. So in order of decreasing amount of elemental iron, we have ferrous fumarate, which has the highest amount and is um, probably most likely to cause symptoms if, if you are going to get symptoms, followed by ferrous sulfate and then followed by ferrous gluconate. So I think it's probably reasonable if a patient is just started on oral iron and is already really not tolerating it well, and you've started them on fumarate, it would be reasonable to switch to the one that has a lower elemental iron content for a couple of weeks at most, just to see if they're tolerating it. But I agree, if they're not, I would just quickly pull the trigger on that intravenous iron. Okay, so with every uh, Ask a Fellow, we ask our fellows uh, to give us five take-home points to remember about uh, their topic. So why don't you give us five take-home points about iron deficiency in pregnancy? Number one, check a ferritin in pregnancy in everyone, at least once, and do it early in pregnancy. Ferritin less than 30 is iron deficiency for sure. Treat it. Because isolated iron deficiency, even without anemia, can impact baby's brain development. Take home point number two, oral iron is really hard to take. Make sure to counsel women to separate it from their prenatal vitamin. And if people aren't tolerating oral iron, don't hesitate. Just move on to IV. Number three. Repeat a ferritin if symptoms of iron deficiency develop or if your hemoglobin drops despite taking iron replacement. And I know I've said this a number of times already in the podcast, but be wary of those lower limits of normal. Just because the lab value isn't falling in the red doesn't mean it's normal. Number five, iron deficiency disproportionately affects those of lower socioeconomic status and pregnant patients of color. Don't always assume that a low MCV in a patient of color is thalassemia. It can definitely be iron deficiency too. Thank you guys for participating in this podcast. It was really great to have you. Um, again, we have Dr. Jennifer Teichman and Dr. Heather Vandermulen, um, current hematology fellows, soon to be hematology attendings, I think, or fellows. <laughs> we need to get jobs first. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we ask a fellow, ask this in uh, the same way uh, with the fellows asking for jobs. Um, <laughs> thank you again. Um, and I'm sure this will be hugely helpful to all of our listeners. Thanks for having us. I love talking about this. So thanks for having us and bringing attention to the topic.
Thank you for listening to this Ask a Fellow episode on iron deficiency in pregnancy. Special thanks to our fellows, Dr. Jennifer Teichman and Dr. Heather Vandermeulen for recording this podcast with us. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Leah Karinopoulos and Zara Morali and Allison Lai. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we have an associated infographic at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again soon.